I wanted to let the world know that black farmers had something important to say, that they were doing important work and that they had lived such a valuable life. Thank you everyone for tuning in. This is episode two of Agenda 23. I'm Mackenzie Feldman and we have John Eichert here and we are welcoming our first guest on the podcast. Very excited to welcome Dr. Gail Myers, a dear friend and a huge inspiration to me. It's a little bit about Dr. Gail Myers. She's an agricultural anthropologist and gardener. In 2004, she founded, co-founded Farms to Grow in Oakland, California to work in partnership with African-American farmers and ranchers and other under-resourced producers. Farms to Grow initiated the Freedom Farmers Market, an African-American farmers market in West Oakland in 2013. And Dr. Gail Myers wears a lot of different hats. She participates and organizes a lot of different efforts in coalition building and has been recognized locally, regionally, and globally. In 2018, she received the Advocate for Social Justice Award with Justie from the Eco Farm Association. And her upcoming documentary, multimedia project, Rhythms of the Land, is currently in post-production. I remember watching the trailer and it's pretty amazing. Dr. Gail Myers is passionate about the legacy of Black farmers, Black agrarian material, culture, and racial justice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for um, inviting me, um, Mackenzie and, and uh, John. I really yeah. appreciate it. Glad to have you with us. It's great to, to see you again, even if it's just virtually. Yeah, I would love to start with just where you're at now, kind of what you're doing, what you're thinking about, where your focuses are, and... We, we can't also not talk about the Senate victory and also how you're feeling about the world right now. Oh, wow. It's, it's a mix. I'm feeling very thrilled that Warnock, uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff were able to, with the help of all these wonderful Georgians that are my neighbors, and were able to pull out the Senate runoff. That gives hope for Biden's agenda and the fact that we may actually be able to get some relief for community, real community relief uh, around housing and employment, looking at uh, criminal justice reform. So I'm, I, like many people, are uh, probably at a place where waiting on bated breath for the next move. Very optimistic with the new Senate, uh, the composition of the Senate. The fact that uh, the senators, Cory Booker, Warren, and uh, Gillibrand were able to push the creation of the Farmer Just the Black Farmer Justice Act, and hopefully that will come to pass and get passed. This is an exciting time. It's a time when uh, there's a lot of momentum. People are talking about you know, the racial reckoning that's happening in the country and around the world, and people are talking about reparations, and that is a key to really intervening in an African-American communities in particular, because there was a statistic that came out about two years ago and they indicated that it would take the black community almost 274 years to catch up with the wealth. Uh, so we don't have 274 years. And to me, uh, like I'm sure a lot of people have felt, the only way we can really balance that is to repay and to repair the loss uh, and the years and the decades of humiliation and loss of land and, and, and community. And so I think this is the time, this is a real good time. I'm, I'm so happy that I'm doing this work and that we have uh, maintained the momentum. We have coalitioned, built, we have collaborated, uh, we have cooperatively worked across many different uh, sectors and many different demographics and we are seeing the fruition, the continued fruition of the success of that work. And so I, I just feel success. It's going to become all around, but I don't want to um, not be realistic that we're still pushing the rock uphill. Uh, it may be a little lighter, but we're still pushing uphill. Our first episode we did the day after Vilsack was announced that the Secretary of Ag under Biden, and obviously a lot of disappointment there with the push for Marsha Fudge and everything. And I'd love to hear 
kind of what you're thinking about that. Maybe what are the what are the ways that we can really push him so it's not just a repeat of the eight years that he was with Obama. And even though he talks about you know rectifying all these injustices and helping black farmers, we know that that's not true. And there's an excellent piece in, that the counter did last year where they did a, a really long research project with like 150 people interviewed so many different black farmers and really uncovered a lot of these lies that the USDA was telling themselves and exposed the discrimination. So how can we make sure that this doesn't happen again? How can we hold Vilsack accountable? Where do you think that we should be putting in? Our yeah, I'm, that's one of the disappointments that I have very early within the Biden administration. I think Marsha Fudge would have been the better person for that position. As a matter of fact, I think any uh, African-American leader that has had some experience in land and working in community uh, would have been better. I think um, personally, Vilsack is all wrong. Uh, right now, as I talked about the momentum and the people that are uh, ready to continue to coalition build, I, I just, I, you know, that's one of the places where there's less optimism related to the Black Farmer uh, Justice Act. I don't know if that, if he's as Secretary of Ag would really be someone that would support that. So I, I am concerned, but however, uh, the way that we can push it, as I said, we're still pushing that little rock uphill, it's a little lighter, um, is to make sure that every day someone is holding him accountable and that we are sharing the things that we find out about what his office, the, the, the policies and who he's putting in place because he is also the secretary, but then he has to fill those various positions and those positions should be filled um, sort of the reckoning and the, and the balancing, they should be filled with the African-Americans and other people of color, because those are, you know, when farmers go into these local ag agencies to apply for a loan or any kind of assistance, they're, they're mostly met with white officers and some white female officers, but in general, they're white males. We need to have the offices local state level offices run by people of color more and more, uh, even if it's half. I think for every uh, secretary that is, is a white, that group should also have an African-American or a person of color. So we've got to be really intentional about this. If we have the same people in positions of power that are making the decisions, nothing has really changed. We're just outside. Uh, maybe the, the, the door is open, but when you walk in, there's still a, you're gonna drop into a hole. So we wanna make sure that people that are in those positions feel the pain that are part of a community that has suffered the loss. So I think just again, holding uh, Vilsack to that accountability and um, making sure that what happened on his first watch doesn't happen again. One thing is that Vilsack and the Department of Agriculture just administers the agricultural programs. And we're kind of focused here on the 2023 Farm Bill as an opportunity to fundamentally change those programs. Bill SAC won't determine what's in the what's in the Farm Bill. The legislature will determine right. what's in the Farm Bill. Uh, I think what you talk about in terms of the way that Farm Bill is administered is tremendously important. And I think yes. criticism yeah. is justified. Mm -hmm. but, if, but if we can bring about a radical change in the Farm Bill itself, even to address the issues they're talking about, that that becomes a part of the legislation and a part of the law, then the Secretary of Agriculture has to carry out the law. It seems to me that that's an opportunity, particularly if we can use the events of the recent events to say, look, we can't go back to business as usual. We can't go back to business as usual in USDA, in, in right. rural communities. Right. We really have to have something fundamentally different, and we need to start with the farm bill. That's true. That's true. You're, you're right, John. And, uh, you know, it may sound radical, but it's not supporting small community, small farmers and small farm holders who statistics always say that they are better stewards of a local environment. Uh, when local funds stay in the environment, there's better infrastructure, there's better services in that community, uh, the agricultural community. There's not been enough focus. I know that there has been some focus on the urban ag, but I don't know though if there is 
um, you know, versus corporate farming versus local small scale farming. I think that is also another struggle, another tussle. If we, uh, you know, the work that we have been doing with Farms to Grow, we have seen how the local support and, and, and even historically in the work that I've done in looking at how African-American communities were developed, they need a strong community that are working, uh, being educated to support, purchase the produce, purchase the livestock from the farmer. Then those people within that community then invest their dollars back into the community. That's a stable local rural community. You know, all the dollars are staying, the food is staying in the community. But what's happened, I guess, and it, you know, it's just the nature of the supply chain ag, is that as we move all this big ag out of the communities, you know, those dollars as well go out of the community. But it doesn't do very much to stabilize the rural local community. And I think the the farm bill could do a lot better in addressing all aspects of the local ecosystem. You know, we're looking at conservation programs, that's great. But there needs to be more integration. You know, the integration could also happen. You know, I know that there is the environmental justice camp and there's the food justice camp and then there's the climate justice camp. We ought to be in the same boat. We ought to all be talking about how smallholders are better for the climate, how they're better to recycle water, how they're better for the biological diversity of the local wildlife and the agroecosystem. They're so separated. There's so many possibilities that people are doing at the local level that I think the Farm Bill could really learn from, take it from this whole large you know, national, where we've got these big chunks and just sort of break them down. How do we make sure this small community, like you in, in Iowa, how do we make sure that all of the food that's grown by the farmers that are doing veggies and other fruits can stay within the local community and those dollars can stay within local community? Got to figure out a better way to support rural communities that are being gentrified, that are being bought up by TIAA CREF and all these other investment groups they're going in and they're buying their far the farmland because the residents in the rural communities, the farmers, they don't see any value in that they can't make a living. So when somebody offers you say, hey, I know you lost two seasons of a crop, we're going to buy your farm. And there's a lot of incentive for that. The children don't want the farm. Uh, everybody's leaving the neighborhood. What, there's nothing that seems really viable, but a real intention around supporting local rural economies will go far, I think, in stabilizing all farmers, not just black farmers, right. but all small farmers. When they buy that land, they know that our current government programs, those commodity-based programs, are going to provide them with subsidized crop insurance and disaster payments and a whole range of things. And this year, I just saw the figures, I think it's between 46 and $47 billion in direct payments to farmers this to year farmers. and that's yeah. going to the the large commodity yes producers. it is yeah that's the reason land investors are going out and saying okay we can buy up this land and we can basically promise the investors a consistent return on their money because the government's going to step in whenever there's a crop failure that's whenever right. there's a disruption that's right. they're going to subsidize it absolutely you know, we need to shift those those policies away from policies that just support the kind of investor takeover of land and industrialization of agriculture and move them in a different direction. Mm -hmm. You know, another idea I like, and to your point, John, when most recently the, the disaster aid that went to large farmers that were receiving anyway from $750,000 payment to support uh, loss, none of the small farmers were able to realize that right. because it's based on your revenue and your income. It seems like there should be an opposite. The more you make, the less you get. The less you make, the more you should be eligible. So you can then build your infrastructure. But what we're doing is this sort of self-fulfilling idea of we're supporting the big. They're always going to get bigger. We're not supporting the small. They're just going to go out of business. Then the big will buy the small, which is, you know, what has happened. And a lot of stuff is kind of upside down. It's certainly definitely related to some of the policies is I think part of that is having representatives, people in those positions that are at the table that are not able to understand the circumstances. 
and the situations that these small farmers are dealing with and really are not willing to take the privilege away from the large white farmers and those that are receiving the lion's share of all the subsidies, 97, 98% of these farmers are receiving all of the ag money. There's, there's gotta be an attempt. And that's why point I was making earlier about having people in positions of power who you know, have black farms in their family, who have lost farms, who can relate to the experiences of the people on the ground, but we have people that are representing corporations because they, they can afford to pay the lobbyists. And so it's, it's that, again, that cycle of abundance for those that already have and loss for those that continue to be lacking right. in too many resources. That's what's so cool about organizations like Heal Food Alliance that have their school of political leadership and their training food systems leaders how to run for office because I think that really is the answer. Everyday people, we see with AOC, just simply having experience of being a bartender has helped her so much understand the needs of everyday working people. And that should be everybody who represents us. That's true. That's true. You're, you, you're absolutely right. That is a great example of someone in a position of leadership and has the lived experience and they're bringing that lived experience into that position. And not only that, they're speaking from a place of a lot of courage and oftentimes she's the lone voice uh, and not afraid to do that. So we need people that have the courage, uh, not only to have lived those experiences, but have the courage to defend and fight for what you believe in. That's why we want you in Congress. That's why we want you representing us because you know, we know, at least we hope, <laughs> that you're really gonna fight for us, whatever it takes. You know, you might, you might have to take a punch, but you're gonna get back up, right? And you're gonna keep fighting. And that's what, that's what we want. We want people that uh, are knowing uh, in the USDA, you know, as they had acknowledged during the Pickford versus Glickman litigation, that it was the last plantation. Well, if you have acknowledged that, then let's take the, that whole plantation model, turn it upside down and change that power dynamic. And how do you change that power dynamic is, you know, several ways you can do that. But for one, you can put the positions, people in positions of power that have not had power and see, see how that works. Let's try something different. It may or may not change things, but we haven't tried that yet. So let's try it. USDA was created as the, the People's Department. That's what Abraham Lincoln called it. And mm-hmm. now it's turned into a production department or a profit oh, yeah. department or something. It seems yes. we just really need to change the culture around the people. Mackenzie and I were involved with a group where we proposed ensuring family income, farm family income of the right. family at a level for farm families that was basically on par or at parity with non-farm families. And I think that could tie in with the, uh, the le- proposed legislation of providing access to land. So if, let's say if a family wanted to start farming, then if they farmed in a, in a sustainable way, you know, if they moved into, a, a, not into large commodity production, but into producing for local markets and things of that nature in a sustainable way, then they would be insured of, a, of an income on par with non-farm family income during that time to help them get started. You think something like that would be? worth pursuing. That's the focus Absolutely. on the, the family. You support the farm family, which is what farm programs started out to be back in the thirties. You talk about parity prices on commodities. Those were calculated to provide a farm family with an income that was on par with non-farm families at that time. It's kind of lost its meaning over time. But in, anyway, the focus would be on supporting farm families that farm are families. farming in a right. way that's good for society, good for the community and good for the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely need more intentional parity in, in the system, as well as we need to really shake up the supply chain system. I know that's how, you know, the, the markets run. I used to always say it's not working food system, but it is working. It is not just not working for the people. <laughs> yeah. It is working for a market. It is certainly working for a system, a supply chain system. It, it, it works well for that. But I think what too many extractive acts, aspects of the supply chain ag system have 
destroyed the environment, destroyed, um, you know, wreaked havoc on the climate, ruined communities because people couldn't afford to raise a farm family and they had to leave. And you see these deserted rural towns that eventually begin to go into development. But yeah, we definitely need a way that we can feed everybody and that everybody gets an equitable share of income for working the land or feeding the community or just being able to be stewards of a forest or taking care of some aspect of, of training new growers there, there, there is a way that we can commodify and add value to people who may be retired, but they're working with young kids, you know, in an after-school program, and they're putting in a garden. You know, we've done that in San Francisco, and we were able to write some grants. Um, but there's ought to be a way that the USDA, and it could be through the local Alabama or Georgia, California Department of Ag, where they make sure that people that are working in the land and training young people or doing any aspect of how we want to define community development around food, that they're paid a wage, a fair wage, because their knowledge, there's value in their knowledge. We take for granted all these assets in our, in our community, all these people that are, believe it or not, a lot of our elders are walking around with so much knowledge that can grow food for a whole city block, but we're not engaging people. There's a lot of ways in which we can continue to add fairness in a system that we, we just need to be innovative and, in, and engage in new ways of thinking. But a real, I think, acknowledgement that the current food system has do, is doing a lot of harm to a lot of aspects of our lives. And until we really deal with that, we're going to continue to have these um, challenges of feeding people, having poor nutrition, farmers going out of business, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. When you were saying we don't have time for 200 something years to get people back all in the same equal playing field, not only just because it's it's extremely unfair to even have to make people wait at all, but I was just thinking about the climate crisis. People, indigenous people, African-Americans have so much knowledge about farming and land that ties in to their ancestors and their culture that like we need more of these farmers, all the people that are farming the land and working it and trying to help mitigate this climate crisis. I always think yeah. about that story you told me about the farmer who would go to his fence and notice that the sun didn't come out at mm-hmm. as long of a time and yep. just people who are so observant about the land. Yeah, they, they knew all the, and, and John, you know, I'm sure you can appreciate this as a, as a rancher, they knew the nuances of the land. They knew a plot of the land that would, um, that had poor drainage and so the water would settle so you wouldn't plant too much there. And they knew the part of the, the land that got great sun and it would just absorb all the sun and the moisture in the water and it'd be great growing uh, environment. They paid attention to when the birds flew south or north, you know, the volume, um, the fish life, every aspect of the natural environment, these farmers were paying attention to it. So when this farmer Uh, Cornelius was walking the fence. He would walk the length of the fence with his grandfather and they would look at the land. And then when he began as an adult and he said, wow, by the time I got to the end, there were some days that there was more fence and there was sunlight. So they were noticing all of the changes that were taking place in the local environment. And those are the people that you want on the farm. You don't want somebody that's in, you got a farm in Georgia Uh, And they're sitting at a computer or watching a drone somewhere in Minnesota, you know, talking about, oh, yeah, we got to we got to put this in and I can see there's no no water over there. They don't understand how to farm and how to be in relation to the land and to the animals. And I think that's what farmers that's what I I loved and, and why when I finished at Ohio State, I wasn't so intent on doing anything other than continuing to work with black farmers because they had this, this love of the land, they had a love of people, and they had a, a type of a, an affection that I hadn't seen in very other careers. You know, I, I went to the Air Force and um, was in colleges, universities, and you know, you see different people in careers, and I did radio, TV, and there's that career set and kind of personality. But farmers, 
they had a type of a personality that just just fell in love with them. Uh, and, and I just thought that that's the kind of an individual, of a human being that we all should be. Why aren't we all like, like farmers? Why aren't we all content on making sure that the water is good, that the soil is good, that there's, you know, we've got forests and we can do foraging if we want to go look for some wild herbs or, you know, any of the medicines that grandma and grandpa used to tell you to go get for a, for a toothache or if you're having pregnancy pains or whatever, there's always something that the people knew that they could go in the woods and get some relief from. And that's why they continue to keep the forest. Those are the people that you want on the land, not the people that, are, that have no relation to anything in the environment, but what they have in their bank account. And that's what you see in, in real large farmers. Their relationship is with the investor or, or with the bottom line not the people, they don't see the eyes of the people that are going without or that are just questioning, why, why me? And I think these are the kinds of, when I you know, think about farmers, that the things that they've sacrificed, they think about the people. When they think about the food, they think about who's going to eat it. What's it going to look like when they see somebody tasting their watermelon or eating some of their sweet potato? That is important to them. That has value, those faces. They're not strangers. And I, and I love that about a farmer. In, in my mind, has never met a stranger because they feed to feed the world and they're so close to the people. So yeah, yeah I, I, I did this work because I wanted to let the world know that Black farmers had something important to say, that they were doing important work and that they had lived such a valuable life in adding to the agrarian tradition of U.S. ag and had received very little, if, if any, acknowledgement for their role in feeding us. And so that was really important to me. I'm working on this documentary, Rhythms of the Land. I was going to ask I, you about that next. Yeah, yeah I, so when I first interviewed a 92-year-old farmer in 97, I saw Rhythms of the Land. I saw, I didn't have the title. But I saw in my mind, I wanted other people to see what I was seeing. It, it was like this, this valuable secret or something that I, only I had. I thought, I can't keep this to myself. I've got to tell my mom, my sisters, my grandma. They all got to know about William Chambers and, you know, what he believes, you know, how he talks about his family, the things that he's seen in his life. And so fast forward, finish the degree ended up eventually moving to California, eventually starting Farms to Grow and seeing and hearing more farmers. It was in 2012 that I took myself and took six weeks and traveled 10 Southern states, interviewed over 25 farmers and former sharecroppers and gardeners and a basket weaver and asked them to tell me about what it was like in their life and their experiences on the land. And so that is the story that I'm going to be telling and hopefully we're uh, anticipating October 2021 uh, as a screening date. And it's a film that's not going to be the kind of film that you go buy your ticket and you buy your popcorn and you sit down. It's going to be like, you know, like how I do everything about relations. So, you know, we're going to come in, we'll have some drumming, we're going to be tasting either some uh, black eyed peas or some okra or some of the traditional foods that are grown in the community. So the food, the story, the community will all be a part of the screening. And we'll be bringing back a whole new way uh, for people to talk about food. And it'll be very artistic. Eventually, I came up with the name Rhythms of the Land because as I was going on these farms over the last 20 plus years, I realized that the farmers understood the rhythms of the land and how they kept them, how they kept the, the animals, you know, how it would be on the farm. And they, you'll see it in, in some of the footage when a, when the farmer drops a watermelon and the sound of their watermelon, the sound of them pulling peas and snapping okra, all of those to me were part of the land. And so I want to share with folks that I see farmers and these black farmers that I've talked to is keeping the rhythms of the land. I'm very excited about it. It's been a labor of love. I came out of the field as the end of the summer of 2012. And then we started Freedom Farmers Market that next year. 
and the community wanted us to help them develop this black farmer's market. And I had to consider rhythms or freedom. And I chose freedom. So we started the Freedom Farmers Market, uh, and that's uh, been a great project. We kept it very active for five years. We transferred it to a church. And now because of COVID, of course, we have a CSA program. But it's, it's exciting, and I'm getting a renewed sense of excitement because I want to get these stories out into the world so people can see uh, and feel what I feel I have been seeing and feeling for over 20-some years. You, you know how... When you hear about something exciting and you get on the phone, you goes, mom, you got to hear this. Um, that's what I, you know, I want uh, rhythms to be. You got to see this. And that, those are the, th- that's, that's how I have felt throughout the course of my life working with the farmers uh, and gardeners that I've worked with is you, you all, you all just got to see this. <laughs> what you're talking about is what I refer to as real farmers. I think Real farmers are connected to the land. They're connected mm-hmm. to, the, to the community. And one thing I'm hopeful about in changing for the future, this whole agroecology and food sovereignty movements are really strong internationally. And there's some organizations here in the U.S. that support them as well. But agroecology is kind of the scientific foundation for sustainable agriculture. But it, yeah. but it links ecology and agriculture. And the first principle of ecology is everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes to the connection between the farmer and the farm and the community is all part of the same whole. And so it, it's not just that we're talking about farmers you talk about with experience and the farmers that I grew up with are like the farmers you're talking about. And we've kind of got separated as we just looked at the farm as a business. Farmers kind of got separated from the land, separated right. from their communities. But there's this whole movement of agroecology that says, no, it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. You, you can't just do one thing. Every time you do something in one part of the farm, it affects the farm, it affects yeah, the yeah. family, it affects the community. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're talking about farmers, that if you have that philosophy of farming, then you have to understand the nature of your particular farm because you're connected to that. Absolutely. The seasons, the topography, the sunshine, the soil, you're a part of that. I talked for years about people talk about what's a family farm. And I said, on a true family farm, farm and the family are part of the same whole. If you took that family and put it on a different farm, it'd be a different family. Yeah. And, and if somebody else farmed that land, it'd be a different farm. So I'm, I'm hopeful for the future because that, that there seems to be a realization that that disconnectedness is causing all kinds of problems. Yeah. And, and there's support, I think, for bringing it all back together and seeing it as a part of the integrated whole. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for bringing the agroecology up, John. That was when I was in grad school, you know, looking at theories that fit. I was like, ah, I threw this one out. Now that didn't fit. It was agroecology uh, and sustainable agriculture that really resonated with me. You were at and Ohio the, State? Yes, yes. And the reason I, it resonated so well is because I I was trying to get a model that factored in people, the environment, plants, you know, all the power. It was really important for me that whatever I utilized that I saw as relevant to how I want to talk about my work, it had to talk about power. And what I love about agroecology is that it addresses that. It talks about people having power and and autonomy and sovereignty on their land. And I think that is a perfect name for a new farm bill, the agroecology, because it speaks for itself. You can't go back to business as usual if you're leading from a place of agroecology. And that would be a great place for us to continue to educate folks that haven't utilized the term or, or even operationalized the term. There wasn't a use of the term as far as in a traditional African-American community but the notion of agroecology worked. It was the integration of the community's values, the farmer's values, uh, taking care of the local environment and making sure that everybody had a place uh, and a voice and had autonomy and a sense of sovereignty. And I, and I think that uh, they would, you know, our farmers, black farmers were doing agroecology before, you know, we knew the term, just like they were doing sustainable agriculture. Uh, Mr. Scott just calls it natural farming. He's a farmer in California. One of the first farmers I interviewed when I moved there. 
and I talked to him about some of the things. He's like, oh, we just, that's called natural farming. We just, we just <laughs> do natural farming. <laughs> right. I said, okay. So they're, Re- you know, real farming. Been, yeah, working the system. It with, but if people, if they're allowed to farm and manage their affairs without interference, that's what's happened. There's been so much interference, you know, even when the, after the enslavement period and 50 years after that, when, when most of the black community started migrating out of the South and developing these all black towns like Tulsa and Allensworth and over 140 other all black towns, for a while they were able to sustain themselves and to maintain. But eventually the whites got mad, government got mad and bombed them, murdered them, destroyed their sense of community. But when people are allowed to farm and operate without interference, there's so much development, there's so much positivity that can come and people can be fed and there can be equity and justice within that community. That'd be incredible, an agroecology farm bill. It would feel harder to make that happen if the business as usual was working, but it's not at all. We're seeing droughts in places like California. We're seeing floods in Iowa. None of this business as usual will be able to be sustainable for much longer. The only radical thing would be to do nothing. Having an agroecology farm bill that puts farmers at the forefront, small farmers, sustainable farmers, that doesn't feel radical at all, but somehow it's this, in this rhetoric of yeah, it, big it would, ag influence it has. Yeah, it would be labeled, oh, that's radical. Oh, you yeah, mean yeah. what we used to do like 120 years ago, that, that thing that we did <laughs> before we got here? Huh, okay. One question I, w- I wanted to make sure I ask you was you, you talk about the history of black farming and things of that nature. When I worked a good bit in my academic career with the 1890 institutions, and there was always this idea that you have a hard time getting uh, black farmers or young African-American people to farm because of the history of slavery and sharecropping and that sort of thing. And there was kind yeah. of sort of a cultural stigma about, you know, you're going to go farm, you know, that's where we came from. Why would you mm-hmm. want to go back there? It, is that a, uh, an obstacle as we talk about bringing more people? Not in? as much. When I started working in San Francisco with young people in the garden program, some of them, you could hear some of their comments around, you, you knew what they extended from. But less now. What is happening, and I'm, I don't, you know, I think that it's a lot of, things have attributed to this is that there are more organizations similar to Farms to Grow, similar to Bugs, Black Urban Gardeners, similar to Soul Fire, that now they're talking about farming as a viable career. Moreover, I think a lot of these young people that are coming out of college, most of them, are not interested in going into corporate America. They have been disillusioned for for a lot of reasons and they're wanting to go back to the land. So there has really been an incredible in-migration from the North, from the West, uh, from the Midwest, back to the South, and people are actually going back to either family land or collectivizing their resources and purchasing land. There was a family here in Georgia, I think they're a family of 19 or 16 members that bought about 100 acres and they're going to create a nice little enclave of, to grow food and grow community. So I see, John, that there's really been a shift. And I hope that this shift continues. And especially if the Black Farmer Justice Act gets passed, because there will be lots of resources. Right. And I think what, what has happened is that now, because more there's more visibility of Black farmers, more people are, are now saying, oh, I can do that. And I've, again, I've seen it in the work that we've done in San Francisco with young people. We put them in a garden situation and the young boys especially, and they'll come in and they, they're not too, for a lot of reasons, the education system can, they can slip through, but they come in and they're our garden program and they take off their jackets and they go, what do you call this? I said, this is farming. And they go, this is what I want to do when I grow up, <laughs> more and more. Yeah. But they can't see it and want to be it. Uh, they can't want to be it unless they see it. Right. So the more that they see community gardens, I think that has also helped. 
a lot of uh, the reinvigoration of community and school gardens. I wish every school had a garden. I think that's one way to get the next generation of farmers in the pipeline. I think that there's been a renewed interest in, especially in black, young black communities around veganism. And so a lot of the veganism movement and the vegetarianism movement has taken people back to a natural, more food, plant-based diet. I would say also there's a lot of movement that's been happening in the culinary world where recipes and chefs and cooks have been talking about fresh food and the value of knowing your farmer. In many ways, it is, uh, we're kind of going back to the old time. People are going back to the land and it's, yeah. and it's time. You know, I, I noticed it, that, that one of the criticisms of the uh, Black Farmer Justice Bill proposal, well, that's going back to kind of the colonial model. If you get 160 acres or, or something of that nature, yeah, I can't remember that, that person is. was coming out of an indigenous community. But, but what if we had the possibility let's say of common ownership, right? Rather than 160 acres, whatever, then you'd have a, a group of people could come together and, and mm -hmm. have, you know, That's 160 acres or 500 acres or whatever yeah. and farm it together. You think that would be a cultural thing that would be more appealing? People are being intentional and either by, you know, sort of the coincidences of, of meeting, people actually coming together to do the common. You will see in the organization that I'm one of the, our organization, one of the founding members, the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, there's a big push to have the commons. Much of the conversation has been around how to make land available for the collective. So you're absolutely right. And that is actually one of the other beginnings. Folks farmed together and they were able to buy and save up and get the, attach the farm that was contiguous to their farm and save up and buy another farm. But the commons, you know, of course, the, the family farm, how everybody, you know, worked when it was time to uh, harvest uh, the hogs or anything. It was, folks came together and then the whole community got to, to eat a bit. But that's really the, and I think you're right, John, that's, that is a miss of the farm bill. And I thought about the, you know, sort of the distribution piece that's also missing. But what communities will do is if we're able to receive the support, if Black organizations that are supporting these farmers who are on the same page talking about the commons, then we can help these communities that go back to the land to do this. We have a model. There is a framework. There's some work that the government is going to can do, but there's some work that's um, left to be done to nonprofits and community organizations that the government just won't do it at that level. And so I think that is the work of community organizations to take that leadership and making sure that we're visioning how this is really going to be successful. And that common, that is a, that's a key thing. One thing that I wish that was in the Farm Bill, Black Farmer Justice Act, is that there, there's not a focus on selling and distributing. So you got all these farmers, you're going to give them land, you're going to do this. Where's the, where's the product going to go? Who's going to buy it? Where's the demand for the product? So again, that's one of the things that we developed with the Freedom Farmers Market for a number of reasons. We had Black farmers too, as a matter of fact, to tell us that they were given six month and 18 month waiting list when they tried to apply to a predominantly white farmer's market. So we had to do the freedom farmer's market so our farmers could have a market to distribute their produce. I'm glad we did because it was, it was just the, the perfect venue for Oakland for a black community to reconnect around food and land. But one of the challenges I think that farmers will have, we see it every day. You're growing it, but who's gonna buy it? Is it gonna be the grocery store? If they're still doing supply chain, they're, the, the trucks are backing their stuff up in the cooler and they're unloading stuff that's come 2,000 miles. Right. You know, so there, there needs to be a real strategy. If we're going to get these people to grow it, if we're going to give them the implements to produce it, we need to be able to make sure that we have an end user to sell it or to convert it into a value-added product. There's a cool movement called Uprooted and Rising, and their goal is to end white supremacy in big ag and in higher ed and... What they're really trying to do is target all these big food companies like Sodexo and Airmark and get universities to instead buy from small BIPOC farmers. 
And kind of just what we were talking about earlier with how to revitalize rural communities, it's really an interesting movement because there are schools in, in every community, there's hospitals, and if we could pressure these hospitals and these schools and any other organizations to purchase from small farmers, from black farmers, from indigenous farmers, that could be a really good, reliable source of income that they're guaranteed to be able to sell. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's a cool organization. Yeah, and there's some particular nuances that have to be considered. We were in conversation, we, like one of the after-school programs that we were working with in San Francisco, and we were working with a black farmer in Berkeley. Well, he, he was to sell the farmer's market in Berkeley and he sold apples. So we had a tentative contract and we got the apples, but they wanted the, all the apples to be the same size. And the farmer was saying, we, you know, there's no way I'm going to grow apples with, you know, that are organic, not necessarily, you know, certified organic that are the same size. So when it comes to these institutional policies, we need, I don't, I don't know if we need two policies, but we need some nuances around the, the ways in which small farmers produce comes out versus, you know, the larger farmers. They have to have these rigorous guidelines, but in fact, if they continue to, they're gonna eliminate many small farmers. We tried to tell the school, this is how it's gonna be. You can cut them in half, but we weren't able to get that contract moved forward because of institutional realities. I think we've got to, got to work all the way to the end consumer, you know, get people out here that really want to support real farmers on real farms that are doing good things in communities and then connect them together. There's one reason these big corporations are economically efficient is that they are vertically integrated. Yes. So, so we need kind of community organizations, farm organizations that include the consumer all the way back to or customer all the way back to the farmer, all part of the same system. And you talk mm -hmm. about power, then you can share power all the way through that system. We don't have time to get into it, but I propose the concept of using a public utility. We have a community hmm. food utility, which would be a public utility would be organized like a, a vertical cooperative that would include, you know, the recipients of the food of, uh, as well as the farmers and small scale processors and distributors. But I think somehow or other, we've got to get that whole system anywhere the farmer connects with that industrial food system. They're working with a system that they don't fit nearly as well as these big farmers do. And they're mm -hmm. working with a system where somebody else has more power than they do. Yeah, That's a great way to get young it people is. involved too. Cause you could get students to be like, we don't care what size the apple is. We want right. to, we want to know yes. where our food's coming from. We want to receive food from people who represent our values, not from these big companies that we don't even know where, it, where it's coming from. Well, we could talk about this all day. I know we should wrap up. At the end of our podcast, we like to give listeners one thing that they can do. So I would love to hear if there's any way that people can support Rhythms of the Land or any of the other work you're doing. And also with the Justice for Black Farmers Act, maybe how can people engage in this? So it was introduced by senators. Should we be pressuring our representatives now? Absolutely. Kind of Absolutely. what's the next step with those things? Yeah, I, the action that I want to leave is just like we went to the ballot box and we voted, that's our voice. We can pick up the phone. We could write a letter to our local council member, to our state representative, because it's starting local all the way to the national because local food policies are also, you know, all cities have a, uh, like Oakland has a food policy council. So start with that local food policy, calling them. If you don't have one, they need to get one and say, how are you supporting uh, small minority ethnic farmers? How are we making sure that the food that is grown within a 250 mile radius, are we making sure that it's coming into our community? Calling your state representatives and your congressional representatives in Washington. What are you doing around the Black Farmer Justice Act? What are you doing around supporting black farmers? And it is all of us holding everybody accountable. It's not just the, the leaders. It's not just us on the podcast. It's everybody taking a part. And that's really how we're gonna keep changing and sustaining a change 
is that we're all involved. I know we get to vote once every four years for a president, six years for a senator, and two years for the House representatives, but we can vote every day. And we go to our telephone and we tap in those numbers and we say, I'm thinking about my representative and, and Nakima Williams here in Atlanta. Can you make sure that you're looking out for that farmer justice, Black Farmers Justice Act? And don't mind if I call you next week to see you know, how you're addressing that. We got to stay on it and we can do that. We have power because if we don't use our power, it will be used against us. So I would just say, vote with your feet every day where you go and, and spend your food dollars, making sure that you're investing in the diversity of community as well as your own health, right? You want to get good food, but you can have a choice on, on where you spend your food dollars. We have a a CSA in Oakland, and it has grown tremendously. So you can go to farmsgrow.com and order one of our CSAs. It's year round now. We used to do it when the market would shutter, we would then do our CSA because we had a seasonal market. But now we keep the CSA year round and it's, it's growing by leaps and bounds. We're working with the Oakland Housing Authority. Everybody wants good, clean food. If you had a choice, you know, you can support everybody, but, you know, look out for Black and minority farmers. And that's really how we sustain ourselves on this planet. We each have a part to play. Yeah. It's I, good I agree. timing too with the, yeah. with the bill. I think people have a lot more hope than before. Right. We're ready for this post-Trump era and we're ready to be hopeful again. Yeah, we survived it. It's like, whoa, we survived that. <laughs> Should I have a t-shirt? <laughs> just, just keep up the good work. I always say if each one of us does what we yes. ought to do, then together we can work. get it done. Whatever it is needs to be done, we can do it. And it's been such a pleasure to have a conversation with you, John. I have well, admired your work and just uh, admire your, your years of service. Well, thank you. Pleasure to meet you. My hope is in you young people. <laughs> I'm not going to be around too much longer, but you all are going to be around for decades to come. So try to plant a few seeds and see how they grow. <laughs> That's right, Mackenzie. We're, we're hoping on you. <laughs> it's so wonderful to have this conversation with you guys and so great to talk with you again. Thank you for taking the time for this. Thank you for doing this podcast.